You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with actor, philanthropist, and entrepreneur Rain Wilson. He's most widely known for his Emmy-winning role as Dwight Schrute on The Office. But his TV and movie repertoire goes well beyond that. You can catch him anywhere from Six Feet Under to the recent Star Trek Discovery series to movies like Juno and The Meg set for release this coming summer. In 2008, Rain co-founded Soul Pancake, the digital entertainment media company that produces content around life's big questions. In 2015, Soul Pancake was listed as one of the Fast Company's 10 most innovative companies in video. In 2016, it was acquired by Participant Media and to date has amassed over 255 million views. Today, Rain continues his work as an actor while also supporting charitable organizations and a nonprofit he co-founded with his wife called Lee Day, which empowers young girls through arts and literacy programs in Haiti. In this special episode of Cloud9, we'll learn more about the multidimensional Rain Wilson and his exciting new plans featuring a podcast with internationally acclaimed religious scholar and author Reza Aslan. Rain Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. Shadi Talui Wallace, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Baha'i Blogcast. So uh, this is a very special episode. Why is it a special episode? Well, because we're sharing this, this is a crossover episode. This is what? This is two Baha'is with a podcast interviewing each other. This is so exciting. Two dear old <laughs> friends, uh, each who have a Baha'i podcast. I think that my podcast is probably heard by like four or five dozen people because I've been on the air for a couple of years and yours is only heard by like two or three dozen. So maybe just a dozen. I think maybe there's just 12 <laughs> people out there. <laughs> maybe a dozen. So all in all, um, we're, we might get up into the hundreds on this thing. Yeah. Without powers combined. I feel like we're like, we can be superheroes right now without That's powers right. combined. Wonder twin powers activate as they said <laughs> dun, in a seventies uh, commercial. Um, I want to say, though, for the record, that you have a way cooler title for your podcast, Cloud9. How'd you come up with that? Actually, it was David. I think his wife, David Langness, he's um, an editor for Baha'i Teachings. He still does a bit of editing. And and David took this and with his wife came up with Cloud9. I just thought it was brilliant. And it kind of, on so many levels, it covers uh, what the, the podcast mission is, which is uh, to interview artists but also to talk about this elevated state that the art can be brought to when it's incorporated with the writings and the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Um, and so so I thought it was just really brilliant. Baha'i blogcast is cool too. Yeah. It's like a play on words. Thanks Blog for cast, saying podcast. so. There's going to be occasional barks in the background because we just rescued a dog. Oh, really? Um what kind we of rescued dog? a dog that we're trying to find a home for, but we may not be able to find a home, so we may just have to keep it. But it's a, it's been an, an abused pit bull. But she gets her name's Diamond, and she, um, if anything comes towards the fence, she goes kind of ballistic. So forgive me if that happens. We can edit out some of that. That's okay. But you may hear occasional barking. No, but thanks for being so kind. But behind blogcast with your host Rain Wilson is pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, uh, you know. So the purpose of your, of your podcast is focusing on artists, some Baha'i artists, some not, and using the arts for elevated conversations and um, kind of seeking transcendence through, through yeah, the arts. Yeah, and also I think as an artist who also lives in the world of the universe, you're kind of, um, you know, there, there's a lot about the arts that is dichotomized and fragmented or for artists to feel that way where they can't talk about their faith and their work or um, can't bring those two worlds together. And I've also met in my lifetime a lot of people who are very open and not necessarily like about 
how they have this Baha'i inspired art, but maybe how the Baha'i faith and its teachings influence their process in making their art indirectly or directly. And I think that conversation is what I was really fascinated about. And I came up with this concept and presented it to Baha'i teachings and they were super on board. Um, and we actually do interview probably, we've only interviewed Baha'i artists so far um, because we're really speaking specifically to like, the teachings of the Baha'i faith and the teachings of Baha'u'llah and how that's directly impacted them in their in their process of making the art. Um, and so that's kind of where we've been at. And I've had the amazing opportunity to interview uh, so many cool people like Steve Sarowitz, who just released a movie called The Gate, which uh, Wait a you're, minute. I you're in that. Steve Sarowitz too. <laughs> I know, I saw that. <laughs> I, know, I was like, Inception. We, and you're in the We have the same film. pool of... Uh... <laughs> Of, uh, we of should talk about that. Though. We should plan that. Um, no, that's cool. And then I've I've interviewed uh, Mitali Shakabanda, who just released a project uh, in Massachusetts, a jazz project. And Laili Tofik is an amazing ceramicist. Um, and another dear friend of mine, Ruha Fafita, who lives in Australia, but she's a Tongan Tapa artist. And I was really interested about indigenous art and the community-based approach to that and how it brings people together and is formed through consultation. Um, wow, that's yeah, and like this, this I you know, attraction to beauty and the importance of of um, striving for excellence in our in our work. Um, I've got some more interviews coming up with um, Celine, this photographer from France, who talks about beauty and and unity and diversity. And um, I interviewed this other Delton. He's a he's from the Bahamas and he's a ballet dancer in Toronto. And got the opportunity to interview him. So. Oh, and another one that I really loved was uh, Louise Prophet de Blanc, who is a First Nations storyteller. Um, so these are all kind of coming up. And I interviewed Jack Lenz last week about his music. And so there's some really cool stuff happening. And I'm really excited for this to develop and grow. And I'm totally learning as I go. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's really exciting. And people can find yours on where all fine podcasts are found and also on bahaiteachings.org. Yes, that's right. We haven't got it on Spotify yet, but um, we're hoping to, but for now it's bahaiteachings.org and also like the Apple yeah. iTunes. Yeah. Could you share a bit about Baha'i Blogcast, how it developed and what are some of the highlights and what your focus sure. is? I found myself in my life had really great discussions with Baha'is that I admired who lived at the intersection of their work and their faith, where their work and their faith were going hand in hand. Um, and that was really exciting to me, whether it was someone was an engineer, whether someone was an artist, whether someone was a school teacher, whatever it was, like however they intersected work, service, um, and faith and expression of faith. Um, uh, and so I thought, well, let's just document these. You know, I know a whole bunch of people that are in this realm, in this sphere. And, you know, let me interview these people because this would be a podcast that if I was a Baha'i youth that I would like to listen to. I don't know that any Baha'i youth actually <laughs> listen to my podcast. Um, but if I was in my 20s or, and a little bit lost, this would be a podcast that I would like to listen to, to hear, um, you know, uh, several dozen Baha'is that are doing really exciting work that have really interesting stories where their work and their faith are both a reflection of their souls. And so that's, this was really more for a Baha'i audience, um, ours, um, kind of as a service to the Baha'i community. And that's what Baha'i blog is. Uh, certainly it gets a, a good amount of traffic from people that aren't Baha'is. And I think some people that are not Baha'is listen to this podcast, but it's mostly a service for Baha'is, but for also people that are interested in that intersection between how do you translate your spiritual belief into action? And um, speaking of which, you are, see, we're doing, we're so far so good, Shadi. Um, <laughs> you are, I've always admired you because you've had one foot in the secular world. You're a, you're a great musician and singer, songwriter, you performed in bands and you've performed in the sexual, sec, not sexual, the <laughs> secular the world. Sexual world. <laughs> um, and, you know, you work, you worked for years at Sarah McLaughlin's music school, um, doing teaching and, and using music as service in that capacity as well. And then on, 
you've also had these, you know, these spiritual albums, these devotional albums based on the Baha'i holy writings. So I guess the big question is this dichotomy that you described earlier between like our spiritual lives and our, um, and our secular lives, how do you, how do you blend all this together? You, you have a foot in all of these different areas. I know you're releasing an album of more secular music soon. You've had several devotional albums coming out. So what's your take on this kind of quandary that Baha'i artists sometimes face? That's a really good question. I think I struggled a lot with it in my youth and my teens. I felt like I had to keep these worlds separate for them to function um, appropriately. And I think actually moving to a different country and starting from scratch was really helpful to me. But I also gained a lot of confidence uh, working with professional Baha'is who were very knowledgeable about the industry of music, but also uh, very kind of deepened Baha'is. And I I gained confidence in working with them and and they weren't afraid or ashamed to hide their beliefs and, and recognize the impact and the influence that it was having on their daily life. And their daily life was their music and was their craft and their art. And so... Personally, I went through this struggle, but I I came out kind of really trying to understand how can I live in coherence? And and it wasn't that I was a different person in either of these settings. Like how could my what is my true identity and how is that how is that rooted in the Baha'i faith and how can that carry me through all of these different facets of life? And so I think as a musician, I've definitely taken a while for me to understand how I'm I'm rooted in both of these worlds and how they complement each other. Um, but I think it comes down to how is how are these teachings impacting the content of my work and the way that I I I act and behave and I treat people. Um, and and I think that's what it's come down to. But I, I definitely came from a world where I was making these devotional albums and people were like you're going to get, you're, you're boxing yourself. You're not going to be able to get out of, of making devotional music. And that, that fear of like, why, why can't I? Music is music in, in, every, in every form. It, the content may change, but it's still, it's still music. It's how I approach it in the mental kind of way that I see it. Um, and so to me, music is music. It takes different forms in different settings. I've got this, you know, name for like the devotional stuff that I do and and Tiny Havoc, which is this band that I'm in and we're releasing an album. The content, the songs are about humility and and diversity and also an and empowerment. Sometimes I'm also like when I was, you know, writing those songs, I was a single 20-something-year-old woman living in Vancouver. And so Obviously, some of those songs are also impacted by my my physical reality. And so the songs, you know, there's one called I Want to Be Your Lady. It's called Be Your Lady. And it's just it came from a conversation with a friend. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to go see my lady. And I was like, I want to not be your lady, but I want to be a lady to somebody. And, and I was like, OK, well, I'm also a Baha'i <laughs> lady. lady. I want to be somebody's lady. But that's Jackson Brown. I want to be somebody's <laughs> baby tonight. Right. So, yeah, kind of stemmed from that. I was like, I'm still this. I'm a Baha'i. I'm a Baha'i first. And then I felt like my that was my spiritual identity. And then my physical identity being a human woman that was in her 20s. I think that came secondary. And I think as Baha'is, we always try to strive to recognize our primary identity as our spiritual identity. Um, and so that took a while for me. Anyways, that was a long-winded answer to your question. That was a good answer, though. How do you, you when you write a devotional song? I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that you find a quote that you like that sparks something, or you feel like there's a melody contained mm. in and around that quote, uh, an idea around it. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how? How have you found that different than writing a secular song? Man, I think it's so much easier to write a put a prayer to melody than to write a song. I think I've maybe gotten comfortable with it because that's where I that's where I started. 
Um, but I feel like the sacred writings and the revealed world of these manifestations of God have so much more potency and ability to share what I'm feeling or to address a concern that I have in that moment than, than my own words do. I feel like my own words fall short every time. So I don't see myself as a songwriter, but I just see myself as this kind of physical channel that's taking these 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 writings of my faith and, and making them uh, unique with my own my own voice and interpretation. But my, I mean, the practical in a practical sense, I, I I pray every day. I try to pray every day, and and I'll find these these words and these hidden words and these sacred writings. And sometimes it's just a, a portion of a longer prayer or a longer tablet, but it'll have like a metaphor or some sort of imagery or word that sparks something, a melody. Um, but I'm not a trained musician. I didn't go to school to study music. I studied in a high school and I, you know, I've always been around crowds that have pursued it as a profession. But for me, I, I come from a very kind of simple approach where I have a couple chords that I'll use um, and I'll try and match them to the melody or to the concept that I was hearing in my head when I was uh, reading these prayers. Um, and, and I'm often really humbled because we know that we're, we're encouraged to put these words to music, but not if it's going to take away from the meaning of these prayers. And so I'm constantly bringing myself to account, like, is this Baha'u'llah speaking or is this Shadi speaking? Is this Abdu'l-Baha speaking or is this Shadi speaking? When I find that I'm putting myself first, then the message of the prayer itself kind of gets lost. So I'm constantly doing this to and fro of like, okay, how much of this is being, is magnifying the word versus magnifying me? And it's definitely a test of humility. You know, it's interesting because you're the lens that is expressing this holy theme or these holy words. I think about mm. like the artist cannot completely remove themselves from the work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like an element of, of themselves that's still in there. Yeah. And I always, I always, I always played with that. And like, I was always a bit insecure about that. Um, but I also see my musicianship as a gift from the creator. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is the best way that I can thank the creator is by, is by using it for, for this purpose of elevating, elevating these writings through music or helping others to, to connect in a really unique way to the creator. Um, and I've heard countless stories of people listening to to my prayers that I put to music and hearing them in a different in a different way that they hadn't heard them before, or helping mm. them come to a state of of being that was they weren't able to do in that in that moment or time. Sometimes we need to pray, but it's just not the right time, and and our, or we're just not our body's not feeling it. So you know, I think there's this amazing. I mean, there's a lot of science that goes into it, but a lot of connection between between music and the human brain. But then when you add this extra element of, of the sacred writings of our faith, I think it's this amazing transcendental kind of experience. And I'm very grateful that I could be part of that process. Yeah. So how does Tiny Havoc fit into that? <laughs> That's a good question. I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> um, I think in order to be an artist, you have to be in the world too. And, and as a Baha'i musician, um, and I say this is not like I make Baha'i music, but I am a Baha'i and a musician. Um, I think I'm, I, there's not a lot of people out there doing the same things as I'm doing and exploring, exploring the same ideas. So I have to also be in the world of music. And I think working with Tiny Havoc and such amazing musicians, they're all so, so talented. I've learned a lot, um, about, about musicianship and also the process of collaboration. Like I've always been the main person in my own solo projects. I'm always by myself. Um, and so working with a team of people and learning about that collaborative process. Um, and there's such humble and amazing um, consultation-ness. I don't know what the word is, but it's really been a huge learning experience and process because like I can't just do whatever I want anymore. 
Um, this is it's like a team. It's a team effort, and everyone's playing their part. And I have to say, I don't do as much as I should um, because I get so distracted with so many other things. But um, like podcasts, like podcasts, and and also like there's a huge great youth movement happening in my neighborhood right now, and we're helping out so many youth and learning how they can serve their communities. And so um, sometimes that feels more urgent uh, than mm. than writing a song. Um, and, and so I'm, that's probably where my, the challenge comes is like learning how to, how to balance the needs of, of my (laughs) spiritual condition of my, of my environment and my neighborhood versus my own needs to play this, this music, which feels a bit selfish sometimes. Well, I, I would encourage you to not think of it as selfish because if you're uplifting people by the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands um, transporting them, uh, entertaining them, uh, creating works of beauty and and poetry, and even just fun. In um, these day, in this day and age, that that is a tremendous service. Thank you. Yeah, I have to just reconcile that in my brain, um, and and that's me. That's my own limitation, and I'm creating that fragmentation and that dichotomy. And I recognize that. I know that for doing the the office. Um, it certainly felt pretty darn selfish when I was doing it. And it was kind of a difficult spiritual conundrum for me. I mean, I knew that I was good at acting and wanted to be an actor. And then I found a really, I was lucky enough to stumble into a really great show. Um, But afterwards, it's been amazing because pretty much every week I run into someone or meet someone who says, Thank you so much for the show. I was recovering from a brain tumor in the hospital and it brought me laughter. And or someone else will say my family was really disunified, but we would we always get together in the office is something that we can watch together. And uh, and just realizing, yes, besides the kind of like mindless like distraction and entertainment of the office and you can you know people binge watch it a lot and just kind of like tune out from their lives and (laughs) they're either going to watch they're either going to play candy crush or watch the office and sometimes they choose the office and sometimes they choose candy crush so there's that that aspect to it too but um when i hear these stories of the positive impact it's had uh with people um the inspiration it's given people and the solace it's given people then i feel a little bit uh, better. But how did you reckon, like, what? Because you were on The Office for, like, 10 years? Yeah, n- nine, nine seasons, almost 10 years. Yeah, 200 episodes. And that's a long time to kind of reconcile with this, like, balance of, of faith and, and work. And how did you learn to bring those two worlds together and, and bring comfort to your brain to keep going or to your soul to keep going? Well, there's not an easy answer to that. You know, it's, there's not an um the, the two things don't uh, coexist perfectly, working in Hollywood and also trying to serve humanity and grow one's soul and, uh, and be a Baha'i. It doesn't always sync up effortlessly. Um, so I think like you talked about your God-given gifts, you know, I've always had a gift at playing quirky characters and right. make people laugh and... Um, kind of being a fool of myself and entertaining people, being a clown essentially mm-hmm. is part of who I am. And God has given me that gift to be a clown and I should use that. You know, I don't know why exactly. I just went to Chicago and did a play really because it was such a funny, funny play. And it was a, just a great tour de force kind of central clown role that I played. And I don't know if it, this, this particular play also had a, it was called The Doppelganger. It was at the Steppenwolf Theater. And I just closed last week and just got back to my house in LA. But I just felt really compelled to do it. I, I prayed and meditated about it. And I just really felt like, you know, I should be doing this sometimes. I should just be playing these roles. I'm not going to overthink it. I don't know exactly why, but I should just make a fool of myself and make people laugh. So there's that element of it. But that was really why I started Soul Pancake was um, to start a media company that would explore life's big questions, life's big conversations that also would inspire people that um, 
would uh, uplift people that had a positive message. Um, I, I was like, I can't, I'm not going to do that through the office, but the office is going to open a lot of doors for me to do something like soul pancake. And it did open a lot of doors. So I got to do a show on there called metaphysical milkshake where I had kind of, that's right. I remember that yeah, yeah. with a lot of crazy celebrities like Blake Griffin, the basketball player and Elon Musk and Mindy Kaling and, all kinds of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a lot of really cool, interesting people. So I got to do that. That was that was awesome. But I mostly got to, you know, help produce a lot of um, really terrific shows. So I was able to kind of do both in that way, and I kind of justified it by saying, "Well, I'm going to make this ridiculous comedy and get paid a lot of money for it." But on the other hand, I'm also going to have this venture um, that may or may not work, but um, trying to kind of incite deeper conversations. Yeah, it's made me really reflect on like how important our our journey is and to not discredit every little decision that we make and but to be constantly aware of the confirmations. And I'm constantly kind of questioning where I'm at and what am I doing to contribute? And who knows, I might meet somebody through this venture that will lead me to something else where I can serve in a, in a greater capacity. How has Soul Pancake evolved. Well, we sold Soul Pancake about a year and a half ago to a really great media company called Participant Media, which has a very similar mission. Participant Media has won several Oscars, best documentary, best film. They did Spotlight. They did um, uh, what's the, An Inconvenient Truth, um, Food Inc. Like very All conscious. Yes, very media. socially conscious, yeah. dealing with big issues. Uh, trying to make the world a better place, trying to engage people in a conversation. Um, so we've kind of become their de facto digital arm. That being said, when you work for a media company, you know they have a, an obligation to their to their board and their funders to make money. So so Pancake has has to try and make money at the same time. So it's it's we've always tried to have that balance of like how can we be of service, engage people deal with life's big issues and human questions and at the same time be a for-profit company. And that's always been a really interesting discussion that we've had and, the, and a balance. But it's, it's tipped a little bit more in the last year and a half towards needing to make more money. So it's been a little more branded entertainment and shows that are about dating and, you know, stuff like that to um, kind of have a wider audience. So uh, it's it's shifted necessarily from from that move, but but I think you shared like the dating show. I think that's still about like misconceptions and how yeah. you know we make these assumptions based on appearance, and, and there's still like an elevated consciousness there in those. In yeah, those and we're yeah, and we're not just doing a typical dating show. We're doing what's the soul pancake spin on on a dating show? Like what are the uh, assumptions? What's your in your, what's your inherent bias? Uh, which is a big catchword these days. What are your, what's your bias and your assumptions and your judgment that you make about how someone looks and to try and go deeper. And this is in the world of Tinder where people look when they're dating, they're just looking at a picture of someone and they're deciding literally in a third of a second whether that person warrants getting a coffee with or not just based on their, their looks. So we are trying to kind of dig a little bit deeper. But the so pancake has has shifted um, from where it started to to where it is now, and that and that needs to happen mm -hmm. sometimes. You've also got a nonprofit with your wife called Lide. Could you share a bit about Lide and 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 the concept and the mission behind it, and what inspired you to start it? We um, we visited Haiti in two thousand and nine, and um, I was on the uh, board of the Mona Foundation, a Baha'i inspired educational charity. And we visited a bunch of schools in Haiti um, were sponsored by Mona Foundation. And we fell in love with the country. I mean, really, it's a special place. It's a magical place. There's a reason why people talk about Haiti so much. Uh, the, the culture is fascinating, the music, the, the food, the vibrancy of the people. Uh, it's an exciting and wonderful place. Um, Yes, it's also very, very poor. It's about as poor as you can possibly imagine. Um, it's almost as if there was like a chunk of Africa kind of put on a Caribbean island. So it's a mix of Caribbean and African and 
uh, it's got some Western flourishes, but some African ones too, um, left over from the slave culture. Cause it was, you know, as a country, it was, uh, the second Republic in the Western hemisphere, uh, that was created by a slave rebellion over the, uh, against the French in 1804. So, um, has a very particular uh, culture. We fell in love with it, and two months later was the earthquake, and um, several hundred thousand people died within a matter of minutes. Um, the hotel that we had stayed at was obliterated; everyone inside of it was killed. Um, and we started raising some money for Haiti, and we knew that we needed to do more. So then we did a a workshop for adolescent girls in one of the tent camps. We stayed in, in tents. Um, and worked at Sean Penn's uh, charity doing this workshop for adolescent girls, along with some other uh, Baha'is. Uh, um, uh, Teresa Langness was uh, involved. Deanne LaRue was involved. Um, and we fell in love with the work and um, saw how powerful it was uh, to do arts work with adolescent girls especially since they were a population that was so underserved in Haiti. I mean, girls are um, just treated like work animals. They're essentially treated like donkeys. They're made to get up at four or five in the morning, do all the cooking, all the cleaning, all the childcare, sell at the markets, work the fields, do all the manual labor. Um, their education is put last. Their well-being, their welfare is put last. Um, I tell this story and forgive me if you've heard it before, but I thought it was really revelatory to me. We did a little getting to know you exercise and we asked the girls what their favorite color was. And one girl was like blue and, and the other girl was like blue. And then the next girl was like blue. And we kind of realized all together at the same time, we were like, Oh my God, no one has ever asked them this question before. So in the Western world, like, What's your favorite color? What do you like the most? What are your hobbies? Who are you? What are you about? Like, there's so much focus on the individual. In Haiti, they're just, they play a role, you know? I mean, it's, forgive me for making a vast generalization, but it is, it is pretty true through most of Haiti in the working parts of Haiti that this is how women are treated. And we saw the incredible the voices of these girls start to come out when they got a connection to the arts. Um, we saw their eyes light up. They felt a sense of self-importance and pride in their work as they read their poems, as they created artwork, as they did drama. Um, and they built a community and the girls got together. After we left every week, they got together and did homework together and did art stuff together. And they continued to gather a created community. And we we're like, wow, this is, we know how to teach arts and this is really important. And this is a, you're going to identify a target population that really needs as much help as humanly possible. It's going to be the adolescent girls of Haiti. So that's when we focused Lee Day on the arts. Swiftly made it the arts and literacy because we realized about half of the girls we were working with didn't know how to read. Then realized, oh, they also need scholarships to go to school. And then We've added on to it a great deal from when we started. So we have a mobile computer lab. We have a mobile library. We do tutoring uh, for them out where they live. We also open up our house for tutoring. We help them with health issues. We bring in women professionals. We bring in artists from the United States to help teach and other parts of the world. And we bring in health professionals to talk to them about, you know, um, birth control issues and health issues and taking care of their bodies, taking care of their babies, um, stuff around uh, restavics in Haiti, which are basically um, kind of slaves. They're indentured servitude of girls in houses. So we talk about issues around restavics. So it's been great. And we're working in about 13 locations with 500 girls at this point. Um, it's mostly Haitian run. Dr. Catherine Adams is still there in Haiti, but more as an executive capacity. And the day-in, day-out programs are all Haitian-run. We have a big Haitian staff. And um, going down in a couple of weeks, it's, uh, it's a really, uh, been a really gratifying work. But again, because of the arts work that my wife and I had done over the years, and we were able to provide uh, 
provide that there. And um, it's been a real honor to getting to know the Baha'i community in Haiti. It's such a beautiful community. The pioneers that have been there for 30 or 40 years that left their comfortable lives in the United States or Canada and just went to live in one of the most difficult countries in the world simply to serve the Baha'i community um, is incredibly inspiring. And I've met some incredible souls there. How do women and girls in Haiti find Lide and become a part of the programming? Well, we basically uh, stole a lot of stuff from the Baha'i uh, grassroots, you know, institute process. <laughs> and um, you just took a lot of ideas. You borrowed. We borrowed, <laughs> yes, from, you know, the International Teaching Center and ideas around grassroots education. So we never go into a community and start a program. That's kind of the American way to do nonprofits, kind of like, oh, look. Poor people, let's go I have in. An idea. And I'll come in and I'm going to build a school here and then I'm going to feed them. And and then I'm gonna leave. And then I'll, you know, and then I'll leave. I'll do it for five years and then I'll take Figure off. it out. Um, yeah. So we only went to where we were invited and we work with the community. So uh, if there's a school or a church or a nonprofit or a collective and they say, hey, we would really love more education for our girls, please come in. We say, okay, well, we need a space. And um, we'll pay the cooks, but we need some cooks to, you know, help feed the girls. A lot of times when we feed these girls, it's the only meal they have that day. A lot of times the only reason the parents let the girls go at all, because they don't care about education of the girls, is because the girls get a meal. They get a free meal out of it. So uh, unfortunately, food is a part of the equation. So we try and work with grassroots organizations and blend our programs in with what's going on in the community so then we have them come up with a list of the names of the girls but then other girls kind of drift in some drift out and they'll tell their friends and then someplace down the river or another farming community will say we'd like a program too so then we drift down we open another you know uh open another program site in that way. Okay, I'm going to switch it back. I've been yapping for a while. Okay. You mentioned before very briefly about the youth work that you were doing and the exciting work in the in the neighborhood. So uh, besides having Tiny Havoc and having your career as a Baha'i devotional music artist in your Baha'i <laughs> I like work, that title. I, know you do, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I should make a card. Baha'i devotional music artist. <laughs> <laughs> that can Shani be on your Twitter, Twitter page. Um, but what... Um, what kind of work are you guys doing in the neighborhoods in Vancouver? I know when I was working up there and visiting up there, there was a lot of exciting work uh, going on. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. So it is really Where exciting. are you working? What are the populations and what are you doing with them? Yeah. So I live uh, in a part of Vancouver called Commercial Drive. And and the work here that we're doing, there's there's roughly, there's about four teams of us that live and, and work and serve in, in this community. And so- Various teams. So, of in a way, you're you're almost like a home front pioneer, like people moving to that community to kind of work in that community. Yeah, and yeah. Just work in the, in the community. Definitely, and I think over the seven years of of living on on this street, um, on and off, but mostly mostly on this street, um, it's I've seen huge transformation in in the community and also transformation in in the activities. And and so last last June July we received this message or actually last April, we received a message from um, the international governing body of the Baha'i community, the Universal House of Justice. And it asked us to access the widest cross section of individuals and invite them to uh, the birth of, of Baha'u'llah, the 200th anniversary of the birth of Baha'u'llah, the bicentenary, which was happening in October. And so we all kind of came together as a, as a neighborhood and we were like, how can we, how can we do this? And we identified kind of four populations that there were a bunch of us that were working with. And so we kind of, we fractioned off into these, into these teams that was working with these populations. And, and my, my team, um, and I had already been working with indigenous populations, children and youth. And so my team kind of decided we were making this a focus. Um, and we had this huge celebration at the Aboriginal Friendship Center, um, which incorporated the arts and dance of, of local indigenous communities. Um, we had storytelling and, and welcome welcomes from all of the chiefs or from the nations that um, that we live on, which is um, Suelitus, uh, Squamish, and Musqueam 
territories. And so we had representation from these territories and um, welcoming us and, and thanking us for the work that we do in these communities. And so that kind of evolved more into like, okay, we have, we have this huge population of people that want to be empowered, that want to learn how to serve their communities and want to to study more about these these concepts of justice and oneness and unity. And so how can we do that? And so we started to look to the youth to uh, engage them in, in developing their capacity to help us serve these populations. And so what has happened or what's taken shape over the last six to eight months has been these pockets of, of youth in local high schools that are coming together in the evenings to study these this material called the Ruhi Institute. And, and they're learning about concepts of, of prayer and our true nature and um, what is, you know, what is the soul and how can we feed the soul and how can our soul, once it's been fed, serve other souls. Um, and so, and so we've been learning about this and, and learning how to work with, with youth and kind of gained a few, um, you know, quite a few youth that want to also make a change in their community. And they see the struggle and the poverty and, um, and, and the daily kind of difficulties that families um, and, and children and youth experience here in East Van, and they want to directly impact and change and, and change their communities. And so we've been working with these youth and it's not just like a one-off thing once a week. It requires, and I'm sure you know this, working with Lide, constant communication and constantly being in their lives and and working with them and learning how, how they, what their reality looks like uh, and how they can live this life of coherence where they're going to school, they're studying, they're trying to pass their exams, they're applying for university, they're dealing with stuff at home all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And then how do you integrate service? And now, okay, we'll take all that and now help other people. Um, and, and I think there's a group of us that are learning, learning about how to accompany these youth so that they can live in this world, but also live in coherence. Because these youth are all recognizing their capacity and they're recognizing their, their ability to serve others and, and the, the power that they have to contribute to the betterment of their world. So then what is our role as, as their you know, mentors or their friends to accompany them and to support them? in fulfilling that obligation that they've now re like realized. Um, so it requires a lot of time and effort. And I think being a musician and also working with um, websites like Baha'i Teachings offers me the flexibility to then go and, you know, if the youth calls me at 10 a.m. and says, I need you to pick me up and take me somewhere, I'll be like, yep, sure, no problem, um, because they're going to a children's class or something like that. And 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 I think it's being readily available and, um, and opening your home. Like having this place that I live become a center of activity has been so huge and an amazing opportunity for me to to serve. I mean, it doesn't take much to literally open up your home to host youth to plan a children's class or to plan a junior youth group. Um, so I'm well, very- this is, It's so exciting what you're talking that. about is, um, and it's such a different, I think for, for the Baha'is that are listening, it's such a different mode that the community is in where it used to be, let's find the most charismatic Baha'i to give a proclamation event or a fireside. And then Hopefully some people declare, and that might've worked in like 1975, and they sign their Baha'i card and say, I wanna be a Baha'i. And then they just kind of start coming to feasts and stuff like that. And that, that whole mode of interacting with the public, it just doesn't work anymore because it's, you know, let, let, let deeds, not words be your adorning. You know, we have, to, we have to walk the walk. So what you're describing is, um, a, you're not just teaching the faith. I meant there's a little bit of teaching that goes on as you do the Ruhi books, but books are not meant, they're not meant to teach the faith. They're meant to kind of deepen on the faith and deepen on spiritual themes and, and create community. Um, but that how much work it takes these days to integrate people in our lives and be friends with them and be loving. Absolutely, building a family. With them. Um, these youth come with already like, Ident you know, strong identities, whether it's indigenous or Muslim or Christian or, um, you know, 
Indian or Chinese or whatever, like they're coming with these identities that have been developed. And rather than say, no, you know, you can't, you have to get rid of all of that. It's like, okay, how can we strengthen these now so that you can be the most confident person that you want to be to then contribute and give back to your community? We're not asking them to leave everything at the door um, before they come in because, you know, Indigenous people have struggled to hold their identities for hundreds of years and we can't come in and say, bye, you have to you have to put that aside and get rid of it or whatever. Like, how are we going to help and enable and empower these youth to now be like, okay, you're Indigenous. What are the beautiful things that you can you can bring, that you can give back to your communities and strengthen mm-hmm. and develop your communities mm-hmm. and the families around you? And so that's been really, really exciting um, to learn about, I think. And we're not the only community doing this. There are communities, hundreds of thousands of communities doing this around the world. Uh, so I'm just one person that's sharing one significant experience to me, but um, our listeners should know that this this process is underway in, in every community around the world. But enough about me. Could you share a bit about what you're working on at the moment, creatively speaking? What am I working on creatively? Well, I, hmm. You just finished a play in Chicago. Yeah, I'm in a very strange transition place uh, as an actor, and um, I, uh, I'm not quite sure how to answer this question. I have a number of uh, projects that I'm working on. One thing that I'm really excited about is I'm going to start doing a podcast uh, for the mass populace, um, right? The tentative title is Life, the Universe, and Everything, and it's with Reza Aslan, who's a great... Um, uh, philosopher, academic. Uh, he had a show called Believer on CNN for a while. He's written some New York Times bestselling books. Um, he grew up Muslim. He then converted to uh, evangelical Christianity. And now he considers himself spiritual, but not religious, but he's very close to Sufism. So Soul Pancake is going to produce it. And it's a, um, you know, a podcast about, you know, life's big questions going back to that, you know, my, my favorite topic. So that's really exciting. And I'm doing more writing. Um, I wrote a screenplay that I'm trying to get off the ground. Um, I do little acting jobs here and there. You know, I did a thing on Star Trek and might go back to the new Star Trek and did a little show on HBO called Room 104. And, you know, little, I have a big action shark movie that I'm in called The Meg with Jason Statham that comes out this summer. So I have that. But, um, and then also the thing that I really want to do is, I'm formulating it now and it's way too soon to announce or anything because it's just in the gestation stages. But I feel like I have, I'm trying to integrate all these aspects of myself. So I'm a a goofy comedic actor. And then uh, I'm also a writer, creator, producer, director. There's that kind of creative side of me. And then there's this, the person on a kind of a spiritual mission uh, to bring big dialogues about spirituality to the masses and to young people. I mean, the reason, the real reason we founded Soul Pancake, the real reason was I wanted to teach the faith. And I found that as I engaged young people in discussions about the Baha'i faith, they had done so little thinking about any issues or questions around spirituality at all, that it became impossible to talk about Baha'u'llah if they hadn't even thought about whether or not there might be a God or not. Because if you just kind of, have some vague sense of like, I don't know, God, I don't know, morality, what is evil, I don't know, free will, huh? If it hadn't been, if these things hadn't been considered and if they weren't actively being wrestled with, it became very hard to to teach people about Baha'u'llah and his revelation. Um, So I thought, well, we'll hit that first. Let's just engage people in, in deep, meaningful conversations. I don't know how successful we were, but it's a passion of mine. But there's a book I really want to write right now. I'm calling it, um, it, I mean, it's literally barely in the outline stage, but it's called um, God, a user's guide. And um, so many people struggle with the idea of God and they've grown up in religions that have a very limited idea of what God is, that God is very punishing, usually a white male with a beard and, um, a robe and you know, <laughs> lives in the sky. Yeah. And even even growing up Baha'i, I kind of inherited that from society. I kind of had this kind of like idea of God as being very judgmental and scowling and kind of had a, 
a checklist, a little clipboard kind of going like, well, rain screwed that up and rain screwed that up and and it, it, and as I've gone on my spiritual journey, like I was talking to, um, someone the other day, it was actually a, a thing my uncle wrote. My uncle, Rhett Diesner is a professor in, in, in Iowa and he studies beauty and he's, he kind of wrote a paper about how God is beauty. That's a different way to think about God, like beauty itself, the beauty of a sunset, the beauty of a tree, the beauty of a flower, the beauty of an opera, uh, the beauty of a, of a painting by Chagall. That in that, in the just the aesthetic pleasure, the aesthetic quality, the the unity of the elements, that that is God. So then you think of God as much more than just a being or a creature or a a a, a, a thing that has an isness about it, quote unquote. That is. Um, so I thought there's so many other ways of looking at the divine creator, the creative impulse through science, through art, through uh, aesthetic, through different world traditions. Um, that's one thing I'd, I'd really love to interview people, um, rabbis and priests and monks and, and thinkers and Native Americans and um, people of different cultures and uh, about uh, new ways about thinking about the divine consciousness. Um, that would be a really helpful thing. So that's something that I've been percolating on. Is that indep- uh, is that as part of your podcast or independent to your podcast? No, that's independent of that. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that's that's kind of what I'm up to. And then that's my exciting. wife and I are going down to Haiti to do some work. And, you know, I'm in a constant prayer, uh, Shadi, of, you know, to God, you know, thy will not mine be done. What would you have me do? Baha'u'llah, show me the right path. Um. I'm very fortunate that um, I have so many options open to me at this phase in my career from what I've done. And um, I want to make sure that, you know, I also have a very large ego and large, and, you know, aspects of myself that are narcissistic. And I want to try and address those every day and keep those on the periphery and out of the way. And, you know, what is Baha'u'llah's will for me? Um, I'm trying to figure out what that is. There's some other Baha'i projects I'm working on, one with Payam and um, some other dear Baha'i friends and Steve Sarowitz. So always trying to do Baha'i media as well. So I have a lot of different irons in the fire. That's that's what I'm up to. Great. It's um, exciting to see you have your finger on the pulse in, in so many different in different facets and you haven't stopped moving or I think it's the life of an artist. You got to keep going. Well, you know, and have multiple things. Yeah. We, we do what we can. But tell me too, like in, cause, and I forgive the listeners, forgive the awkward format of kind of going back and forth like a ping pong ball, but I did have some other questions I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Um, what's your story a little bit? You're like a, a walking Benetton ad of, of <laughs> I know third culture kid over here, third culture syndrome. Um, I'll share that my mom's Iranian and she moved to Canada before the revolution when she was 15. Uh, and she went to high school here and got her diploma and, and um, became an architect, an interior architect. And then my dad uh, was Australian, born into an Irish Catholic family and um, grew up in a very, very strong Catholic uh, boarding school and and on his own discovered the Baha'i faith while he was fishing in the South Island of New Zealand. And not soon after, uh, the temple in Samoa uh, was being inaugurated and opened to the public. And my dad ventured up with a bunch of his mates <laughs> uh, from New Zealand. And my mom, who's a, a distant relative of the architect um, of, of the temple, um, Hossein Amanat, they, they all, my whole family, uh, extended family, went to the inauguration in Samoa. And um, they they met there. I was born in Sydney, Australia, and my sister was then born in Sydney. And then my family got asked to volunteer in the Baha'i World Center. And so we moved to Haifa, where my first language, actually my first written language became Hebrew. Um, Whoa. And I should, 
I should clarify that my mom only speaks Farsi and English, but in that time, I think we were exposed to Arabic as well, and so um, and and Hebrew. So f- Hebrew became my first language, um, and then my brother was born in Haifa, and and together, seven years later, as a family, we moved to Brisbane, which is where we settled, and and I was born as an Australian citizen, but I always had this Canadian passport. Um, or citizenship that I'd never activated. And I got this letter when I graduated university. I, I actually studied business uh, because I wanted to be an artist, but I wanted to be an artist that maybe made some money. And so I tried I tried business now? school. <laughs> I don't know, not, not so good. Um, <laughs> um, and so I got a degree in public relations and media communications and um, studied business. And yeah, and then I, I got this letter from the Canadian consulate saying that, they would revoke my citizenship if I don't activate my passport or live in Canada or something like that for a period of time. And I was like, oh, God, no. Um, so I bought a one way ticket to Vancouver and I stayed with some family. And I, my plan wasn't to stick around uh, for more than 12 months. And then I bought a bed and a couch and I started to really become rooted and involved in the community growth process. And I found a really solid group of friends and got this great job at the music school and connecting with musicians and learning from them. And we always an active Baha'i through all of this process. I was for sure. I, I, I questioned things. I still question things. I think we all do sometimes, but I think I was always very confident and I don't, I'm always asking my parents, like, what, what is it that you did? And I think this inherent, and I, I think I say this as a very, as in a very positive way, this inherent fear of God that I developed. And it wasn't this fear that I was like, I had to, you know, I had to confess my sins or this fear that I was going to hell if I made this decision. But it was like, my parents can just trust in in God and I can trust in God and and hope that I'm protected and hope that I'm confirmed. And, and whatever decisions I make is between me and my creator. And I think that ultimately gave me the strength and the confidence to adopt this faith for my own. Um, and But I was always very active in the youth movement and in the activities that were happening um, as a youth and as a child. Um, and my parents were always very active and we would serve a lot together, which definitely helped and, and we you were would a very create, musical family did you guys yeah, together at the dinner we table we would create or? a lot of music together and and spend a lot of time playing music and my mom has this mo- like most amazing voice i was exposed to a lot of great musicians and a lot of great music that definitely influenced me so my parents both not professional musicians but definitely have a knack and a talent um so you mentioned god there a little bit if i'm going to do this god book and interview people about uh a, a different uh, definition of God. What would what would your answer be? <laughs> What's your uh, relationship to the creative energy, the divine consciousness, the great mystery? I think it's this. It's the divine confirmer. I think we have this element of faith that guides us, that gives us hope, and and believing in something higher that is divinely going to make decisions for me. Um, gives me the detachment and the strength to just keep looking for those confirmations, but to keep moving and to keep creating work and to keep trying new things and meeting new people. Because I feel like if I'm, my ultimate goal is to serve the creator and in, in, in manifesting his, his teachings of oneness and unity and justice, then I'm ultimately going to be confirmed in, in my decision. So I think it's like this higher power that protects me and guides me. And I don't know if it's a she or a he. Uh, I don't know if, you know, they're what they look like, but I, I believe in something greater that guides my creative and physical process and purpose. That's pretty good. Thank you. Can you are you I gonna quote that. me in I your book? That. Yes. Okay. <laughs> beautiful. Deal. Thank you. I just came up with it right now. But it was a good question to ask. Well done. Thank you. And I, um, the Baha'i blog does a, a series called Studio Sessions, and you've helped with these before. And mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty, um, uh, it's it's pretty, it's a pretty exceptional uh, uh, project that Nason Naragi has has spearheaded. Um, there's 150 that have been 
published so far in 30 different global locations and 20 different languages um, of grassroots music. So can you give, can you say any thoughts you have on like just people making music? I, I just love it so much because it's just, it's someone with a guitar or someone with a piano and they, I love it. I love that it's want to make it's highlighting the sing. They're not trying to be professional musicians. Yeah. I love it. I think there's a place for music in every setting. And I, I believe, and I've kind of created this model of like, there's three different kind of modes of, of musicianship in, in community life. You have those who are, you know, the highest level of excellence. They're striving to create music as professionals and, and make a living off of it. And then in the next tier, you kind of have those who are using it in community building, um, in, in whatever capacity, either through writing songs inspired by the, the teachings of Baha'u'llah or they're putting the sacred writings to music. And then you have like the third tier, I believe, that is is youth that are making music for themselves, but to feel to to feel creative and feel that bond and that connection with some sort of higher power um, that but, you know, maybe not necessarily has this approach of a community building exercise, but it could evolve into either of those three, you know, either of those tiers. And so I believe that there's a place for all of these and they all have the ability to support and build each other up. And and so for me to produce the studio sessions here, it was really seeing those three worlds kind of come together. You had, you know, people that had toured as musicians and had, you know, own an engineering um, production studio. And then you had them working with people that had written songs in large groups um, or put the sacred writings to music, music in large group settings. And then you had some youth that had come out from a very remote community, rural community that had never worked with a large number of people. Um, and, and we're learning through all of these different processes and, and developing their own skills. And it was those Baha'i Blog studio sessions are a really beautiful way in uplifting people and creating more resources for Baha'is to access Baha'i-inspired music and media, and also for those themselves that are contributing to learn from those experiences and develop their own skills and be exposed to maybe a music studio that they'd never, ever step foot in, in any other scenario. Mm. And mm. And I think the music, studio, the studio sessions are promoting the importance of, of music. And I think we won't know how important it is or why we need it until there's just more out there. And I praise Nason and Baha'i Blog for creating a space just to have more of it available and readily available for people online to and access it. it's so different it. than the SoundCloud work that everyone does when they, they want to be discovered and they want a music deal and they Completely. want to record, they want to put their stuff on YouTube and get huge number of likes and, you know, be on a, this is literally music as service, like, and then music as an expression of the heart. Like, mm-hmm. here's a beautiful prayer. I'm going to set it to music. I know I'm not a professional <laughs> at, a, at a gathering. We're going to sit together. Uh, we're going to build community through it. And, you know, I had some quotes here about music, and I love this one by Abdul Baha. And he says, although sounds are but vibrations in the air which affect the ear's auditory, auditory nerve, and these vibrations are but a chance phenomena carried along through the air, even so see how they move the heart. Mm-hmm. A wondrous melody is wings for the spirit and maketh the soul to tremble for joy. And Shoghi Effendi says, it is the music which assists us to affect the human spirit. It is an important means which helps us communicate with the soul. And you think about, you're talking about, like we were speaking about, a a broader context to view the creator. And you think about this miracle, that we have these ears and they have these little crystals and hairs inside our ear and, and a little membrane that converts it to neurological impulses. It converts it literally to electricity so that we experience it in our brains in the physical world. But, but these vibrations can be happening in the air, literally in the oxygen and mm-hmm. in, in nitrogen and carbon di- dioxide that's out there. And then it, it goes along and hits these little hairs and these little crystals and it converts it to electricity. And then it communicates with our soul and uplifts our soul. It makes our soul to tremble with joy. 
I mean, that's a miracle. That's unbelievable. And that's only, that's God given like that. That that's a miracle. It, yeah. it can only happen with the creator. And it's a miracle that's done through science. Right. But so there's a science of music mm-hmm. and that is valid. And that's also miraculous in itself, but it's so obviously as a sign of God on earth of that transcendent power to um, have just have these have these impulses cause our soul to tremble with joy. Yeah. Yeah. And so those channels, like you said, and, and creating spaces where music could be shared for people to be able to experience that. That's definitely a miracle. So I think this is a really good place to wrap this up. Rain Wilson, thank you so much for all that you do in bringing joy and light and and serving your community in such a unique capacity. And your attitude and humility has been truly um, inspiring. Thank you so much. What are you doing with your mouth? <laughs> I'm chewing on a lid to a, a bottle cap. That's very sweet of you, Shadi, but trust me, there's not a whole lot of humility going on here. And uh, uh, <laughs> so, but thank you. That's that's very sweet. Um, and thank you for talking to me. You've always been one of my favorite human beings Aww, on the planet. Oh, you're so sweet. Uh, such a brilliant musician. And you're constantly doing service and weaving your, your creativity and your music and your gifts with just getting in the trenches and, you know, getting, picking up pizzas for people and setting up folding chairs and, uh, and, and doing all the, the difficult, thankless work as well. Uh, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you and we will have links down below for people to get to know all of your different ventures. Thank you. Uh, musical and, otherwise. and this, these podcasts will be available on cloud nine. Uh, that's through Baha'iteachings.org and also on Baha'i blog cast, which is available on all of, of the websites and the networks affiliated with Baha'i blog. Right. And I urge all of my dozens of listeners <laughs> to uh, tune into Cloud9 and you can urge your dozen listeners yes. to listen yes. to my blog because this is a great cross-pollination and I love your focus on the arts um, and that you're doing that. It's a great service to Thank to you artists. so much. Well, thank you again for your time and have a wonderful, joyous day. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.